Hello and welcome to Androids and Assets. I'm Marshall. And I'm Stephen. This is the show where we talk about the political economy of speculative fiction. So this is looking at decision-making, power structures, and who gets what uh, and who gets screwed in all of our favorite science fiction and fantasy settings. And today is Halloween. <laughs> today we are very fortunate to be joined by author Premi Muhammad, whose debut novel, Beneath the Rising, came out earlier this year. Welcome, Premi. Hi, guys. Thanks for inviting me on. Thank you very much for being here. Can you give us just your quick blurb of like, this is what Beneath the Rising is as a story? I can try. I think the best blurb that I've had so far was from a guy I bumped into at the World Fantasy Con last year. And he said uh, he would summarize it as a scientist solves the world's energy problem and creates a bunch more problems. I loved that. I thought that was accurate. I guess if we're going into more detail, it's about a child prodigy who is about to age out of being a child prodigy who develops a uh, clean energy reactor and uh, very excitedly puts it into play and discovers that it has attracted the attention of some extremely questionable beings. She sort of caused the problem, so she has to solve it. And she and her best friend uh, get tangled up in this and try to go off and save the world. It's a really wonderful story. I mean, this isn't the thing that I like most about it, but I do like that I live in Edmonton and uh, there was lots of times that I was like, hey, that's a place in Edmonton, uh, which is not something that happens often when I'm reading novels. So It was just very refreshing to have a literary depiction of someone using a toonie. I, I don't. I really. I got that. comments back from people saying I didn't know where the book was set initially, and then about two pages in, they reference uh, Taco Time. So <laughs> Johnny is a character comes from relatively wealthy parents, um, and is white. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like she already like operates in a different world from you know, a, a large majority of the world's population. The, the world just works differently around <laughs> her. Uh, and then she also makes this covenant. So the world works even more differently. But is that just sort of like making explicit the difference that she already has? It's, it's like it, it takes that like socialized internal difference that you can't see and makes it like a, a metaphysical like explanation for it of like she's a different person because of reasons, not just because society deems her to be. Yeah, I think so. Because, um, and I can't remember if Nick comments on this in the book or not, but um, he's very aware, and everyone in the world actually is very aware, that the deck was stacked for her to begin with. So even if she hadn't turned out to be, you know, a, a scientific genius and a an ultra-fast learner and an inventor and all the other things she turned out to be, her life would have been extremely comfortable. You know, her dad's an academic, so okay, he's probably poor. But uh, her mom is a businesswoman. She owns a chain of, uh, of businesses. They have, you know, the big house. They live in the fancy neighborhood in St. Albert. That was the start that she got. And without anything else in her life, in fact, without any effort, she would clearly have led uh, a wonderful, privileged life in every respect. Uh, she would have gone to, you know, university without worrying about her, her school fees. She would have not worried about getting a job. One of her parents would have just hooked her up with a job. Her whole life would have just been kind of one long, frictionless slide down the toboggan hill. But to have a supernatural aspect to it, I think really... I don't want to say drives Nick nuts, but 
already had all these advantages and now she gets this? How on earth is this fair? And also everybody thinks this was uh, natural. This was the product of chance that she's special just because she's special. What were the odds? You know, child prodigies aren't very common. Uh, this is amazing. And then to find out more or less that she cheated, that she's gotten it all unfairly, uh, that just adds to, I think, what is a, a fairly complicated relationship of, of love and resentment. And people who, you know, have this head start do cheat in the world. Like, <laughs> that's that's how they keep more, right? Like, they break the rules or rewrite the rules to say, oh, no, 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 like, yeah, sure, like, it, you know, you're good and all, but I'm better because the rules say I'm better, and I wrote the rules. So it's like these disparities are, are morally justified because they're the product of supposedly fair competition, but there is no fair competition. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I think it's also kind of implied there that if uh, she hadn't been cheating that way, as she got older, she would have found lots of other ways to cheat the way rich people do. It's kind of about class, it's about race, and it's about like a distribution of power in society. Uh, and so... I guess, and this is kind of what I was trying to get to before, is this bit about like how like tw this is the kind of inversion on the kind of Lovecraftian supernatural horror piece, right? Uh, that kind of like there's this, the, the, that the monsters are always this ineffable outside thing protruding into our space. And this is much more than actually the sins of the ruling class or fundamentally uh, the, the source of eldritch horrors um, rather than like any sort of like foreigner or... Uh, that didn't come out on purpose, but it very much was uh, a source of glee as I, you know, kind of finished it and polished it up because, of course, uh, Lovecraft loved and adored the upper class. That was what he wished he was. Um, with every particle of his being, he wished that he, and, and I'm getting this from things I've seen written about him, not things that he wrote, because I thought generally he was a dingbat, not a very good writer, but um that he wished actually that he was English, not American, that he wished that he was English nobility. You can see the, the self inserts in all his stuff. There's, there's a rich heir. He's got a, he's got a castle. Um, he performs magic. He's got an independent income. He doesn't have to scrounge for money. Um, he's, he's maybe nobility even. He's not, uh, he's not a merchant, that kind of thing. Um, he absolutely idolized the upper class and what he feared and hated was the lower class, poor people, immigrants, refugees, anyone who didn't, okay, well, uh, he looked like a frog person, but anyone who didn't look like him, um, even people that we now consider white, Italian people, Polish people, Russians. Uh, so to flip the script in the book wasn't done on purpose, but it did become more fun as I went along as you bump into those ideas in a lot of older cosmic horror and you just go, whoop. Again, we're speaking of sins of the ruling class. Uh, were there any like um, contextual saliencies or like anything that was going on in the world or, or around you that were like that kind of were touchstones for this or, or influenced you during this process? Yeah, I think so. Um, so when I started this, I had been noodling around with the characters for a little while. Um, trying to figure out how I wanted to work on a story that was kind of um, about race and class and overcoming difficulties without anybody really being a damsel in distress for a couple of years. And I, I started what would be, I guess, the final version of this in about 1998. Uh, no, I'm sorry, about 
Um, about 2000. So I was in a second year university, my undergrad, and um, finished it around 2002, um, the summer that I graduated. So one thing that really struck me like smack in the middle of the book was 9-11 and seeing how the world changed in what seemed like a heartbeat. I don't think I had ever personally experienced any historical event that had caused so instant a change to what felt like everything, just the the, the panic and the paranoia and uh, the airports shutting down and the racism and bigotry. A friend of mine actually at that time was beaten up on the way back to his residence, the Muslim friend. And uh, I was, I was shocked that this was happening in Canada. I, it didn't, I think, occur to me that it was happening everywhere. And so that actually ended up being the opening scenes of the book. And yeah, I was I was standing in the Students' Union building uh, that morning when everything happened. And I noticed everybody looking up at the TVs and I stopped and I was like, oh, I'm going to be late for class. And I stopped and looked up too. And uh that really was kind of the touchstone, I think, that became sort of the piece of grit that the novel grew around in the sense that um, it was more clear who hated who. It was more clear why they did so and who was considered to be other and who was considered to have invaded. And initially in the book, fresh from 12 years of Catholic school, it was going to be um, demons and angels and the big bad guy was going to be the devil. And uh, I decided that wasn't really kind of flexible enough because they already come with all this baggage and all this structure and all this uh, scripture. And there's only so much you can do if you say something is like a demon or is an angel. Readers get this idea in their head. I had all those ideas in my head, even though Catholic school didn't actually cover anything interesting like that. Um, so I, I actually switched over to uh, kind of the more uh, Robert E. Howard kind of cosmic horror-ish monsters. I actually hadn't read any Lovecraft by that point, but I had by the time I went to go polish the novel and uh, consider it for publication. But yeah, really where it came from was um, how little in my life I had experienced this level of collective public hatred for people that looked like me. That's a really horrific thing to have happen to someone you know and just like just so arbitrarily. So kind of moving from that then because a lot of this book also takes place then in, in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Like it's more about actually the, the, the particular history you're trying to situate it in, right? With the sort of like pre-modern polytheistic gods, you know, <laughs> like hearkening back yeah. all the way Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, we talk about Ur of the Chaldees and, and Nineveh and all this kind of stuff, which is which is like an old school, like Bible nerd, like <laughs> Old Testament uh, studies guy. I'm like, hey, that's really fun. Yeah, setting it in kind of like the Middle East, Northern Africa was uh, pretty fun. I've never been there. I did a lot of research to sort of make things feel approximately correct. And apparently I fooled a lot of people who think that I spent time there researching for the book. I'm like, no, I did not. Yeah, the whole idea, um, I did want to set at least some of it kind of in that Mesopotamia region, because that was kind of where like cities developed, where we learned to live in uh, 
large groups and supposedly to get along with each other in, you know, large confined areas. I'm very interested in the development and planning of, of cities and their infrastructure and what that tells you about the values and beliefs of the people that have either planned the city or have built the city around themselves. And I often think if I hadn't uh, gone into science, I might have gone into urban planning or history or something like that. Just it twigged when you you said like learn to live in cities and, and live with each other and sort of like developing civilization, because along with that is like a lot of developing technology and and new ways of, of doing things. Uh, and, and that's really in a lot of like that's what Johnny does uh, all the time is like developing new things to make life better for people. It, when when Johnny does it, it, it seems very altruistic and it's sort of like here's things that are going to make life better for people and mostly you know, like while Johnny is uh, incredibly wealthy um, and comes out nicely on this, it also, you know, these things, they sounded like it was like cheap technologies that improved life for everyone. There was like better solar generators and um, I think like a better furnace or something. So it was like life got better for a lot of people all around the world. But a lot of the sort of like tech bros that are developing this technology like or developing new world-changing technology now, don't seem to be doing it for the betterment of people. <laughs> when you wrote this, we didn't necessarily have the same sort of like Elon Musk, like we we had Bill Gates, and that at, was though. it. We had Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. I was thinking that when he said tech bros, I'm like, oh, how many? There weren't a ton of tech bros back then. I mean, there were tech guys, but like Elon Musk is clearly a tech bro. He's a He's a bro. He's yes. like Tony Stark. Pay- PayPal mafia. <laughs> yeah. 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 P- Peter Thiel. Yeah. All, all those vampires. Uh, but they, they they develop this technology and they're like, this is for me. Like, so that I can get out of here and leave you all behind. That's why I'm doing this. Uh, why is Johnny not like that? That almost seems suspicious, doesn't it? An extremely rich person who is developing things and says... Uh, I'm not going to patent this. I'm going to give this away or sell this very cheaply. I want the whole world to have access to this. Uh, I think a lot of people's response is, or probably should be, okay, what's your angle? But she really does want to save the world. She is doing this entirely for her ego. It would taint it if she was trying to make a profit off everything she made, I think. It wouldn't satisfy her internal sense of, I'm a hero. In fact, I might be a superhero. In fact, when the history books write about me later, I want them to say that I did save the world. And so that is what her ego is driving towards. And that's kind of what puts the, you know, like the the blinkers on her for a lot of the decisions that she makes when things start to go sideways is because she doesn't want to let go of that idea of being a superhero uh, even though, frankly, she kind of caused all the problems that are happening in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's in, fundamentally, I guess, uh, an, inatten- an inattention to intersectionality, right? Because mm-hmm. for her, she doesn't she doesn't, I guess, think have a theory of intersectionality, uh, and and I think often this is what people like. One of the things I was reading this, and I I, I started I kind of scolded myself for saying this, but I'm like I'm like this is really white feminism, you know, <laughs> uh, which which is not a term I like, but I think when it I think it, I, I think it's a bad a bad 
way to describe it. But I think <laughs> fundamentally what that is is, is that is it's someone who is you know attempting to um, deploy emancipatory narratives of either feminism or Marxism or anti-racism, but doing it without any broader intersectional framework, so that it bulldozing everyone else outside of that in the process. Yeah, it's very it's it's intensely uh, image focused. Whether these people realize it or not, it's it's so focused on the image and on the projection of a certain image, almost like a piece of art that has no depth to it. It's all surface. So that essentially is, I think, kind of what you were trying to say there. Yeah, is Johnny is very much sort of a, a figure of that. Uh, she don't she even think uh, think of Nick's or Nick's family as being different from her in most essential aspects because she just is so self-focused and doesn't care. Mm-hmm. I, I really did enjoy um, the, the, the scene that explicitly lays it out of like, no, you are, you are and always have been different from my family and you've, you've never recognized that. And that's, that's what breaks our, the relationship is that like, it's like, oh, well it's, it's all the same, right? Like, we're all we're all friends here, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So uh, that was a, a a powerful scene in in the book. I quite oh, enjoyed it. Yeah, I think Nick has been storing up a lot of this stuff for a long time because, uh, you know, the myth that all rich people think about is money um, isn't true. I don't think. I think poor people uh, think about money a lot more. I know for most of my life, uh, all I could think about was money. Um, because when you don't have very much, uh, it tends to expand to take up that available area of your brain. Whereas rich people, I think, don't think about it even in terms of money as a thing or getting more money or gaining more money or keeping their money. They just assume that every decision they make is going to result in them becoming richer. And poor people assume everything they do is going to result in them becoming poorer. (laughs) So it's a huge source of paranoia and it eats up a lot of your time and mental energy i can speak to that firsthand <laughs> and, and the sad thing is that both of those assumptions are, are generally correct mm-hmm. as well because of the aforementioned uh social physical and and maybe metaphysical rigging that's going on uh, yeah yeah so so then can, can we talk about the, the baddies the monsters oh like, sure because <laughs> <the, laughs> i i love i loved i love the design of these I, I, I see them in my head and i'm just like oh they're so yeah they're so cool uh <laughs> so kind of like what's like they because they have with i don't i understand you don't want to spoil the book uh but like is there like what's what's their motivations right in this uh God, i love sorry i love talking about this i was uh, ranting about this on Breaking the Glass Slipper uh, several months ago, uh, a podcast. And um, we were talking about what makes cosmic horror. And we kind of looked at the examples that were brought up, which were mostly uh, books, uh, you know, Arthur Mackin and uh, Lovecraft and August Derleth and Robert E. Howard and uh, Lord Dunsany and, and all those guys. And I think we eventually pinned it down to, we think that what makes something cosmic horror is the villain. And the villain is uh, super, super bad and doesn't necessarily have an easily understandable motivation. So uh, in in your regular narratives, you've got something like, well, okay, um, the villain in uh, Macbeth is motivated by ambition and the villain in, uh, you know, the, the Count of Monte Cristo or whatever is motivated by revenge. These villains, the ones in those stories, they're just bad because they're bad. In some cases, 
it's because they don't care about human life enough to take any special precautions to preserve it when they come trampling into the universe or into people's minds or what have you, because you looking at them and losing your mind is a very common occurrence, <laughs> which uh, uh, appears in so many of those stories that is actually kind of kind of funny. Their, their motivation isn't necessarily to do evil upon any person in particular, or even the human race in particular, or even the planet. They're, they're ancient, and that gives them sort of the authority and credibility, they think, to do whatever they want with whatever sentient species they run into. They probably don't even know their entire pantheon, or whatever the word for an evil pantheon is, uh, bad theon or whatever. They don't know how many of them there are. They don't know where the alliances are, or the the old rivalries, or who's who is whose enemy, or who's related to who. And they probably all hate each other because that's how they do. They're discussed as being, in some cases, you know, ultra primitive uh, or ultra advanced because they've either. <laughs> evolved up to a certain point and then just stopped or they kept evolving for billions of years before humans and the um the idea of being able to work with one of these these sort of uh pre-existing historical baddies is great because they're so they're endlessly useful as an author they could be anything you want them to be they could be from anywhere they could be able to do anything, move anything. They're basically like gods. They can't be controlled. They can't be reasoned with. If you pray to them, you better be careful what you ask for. They they have a very short attention span. <laughs> they, um, I, I liked also some of the stories um, from, from Lovecraft and others of some of them forming things like uh, avatars that either possess people or can talk to people or start cults or get some kind of validating your energy or something from being worshipped. So uh, the story of Nyarlathotep, who comes down disguised as a scientist, and he actually goes to theaters. He puts on exhibitions, and you're like, I thought you were supposed to be some kind of gigantic cosmic thing that covered galaxies. Okay, whatever, now you're a guy in a suit, and you're in a theater, and you somehow caused the end of the world. Good job. Like, why, why would you do that? So none of the original stories get much into motivation. And I love that. You know, they're just doing whatever they want, uh, whenever they want, because really, who's going to stop them and how? A kind of non-anthropic divinity. Like, like the Greek, yeah. Greek gods, you know, it's always they, they want to they have sex, they want to eat something, whatever. These guys, you don't know yeah. what they want. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, one of the things I noticed in the, in, in the book is, is they seem at least the ones they're particularly dealing with uh, are very focused on contracts. Like mm-hmm. a deal's a deal's a deal. And we, we don't go, Hey, we made a deal. And we don't go back on our deal. Uh, <laughs> which, which I think is, I mean, that, that's very reminiscent of uh, what in my past, my understanding of God. <laughs> uh, yeah. <personally. laughs> well, it's, it's, it's got kind of that religious connotation to it, but also kind of the idea of, uh, you know, stories about the faith. So if you make a deal, um, you literally cannot break it. Uh, if you try, there are consequences and repercussions. <laughs> but in this case, it's partly also um, the way the, the the world of their magic is structured. Once you've made that covenant, it's a it's a spell. You've cast a spell, so there actually is no way to get out of it, even if you're trying to be really crafty. But I mean, yeah, it it, it is very much one of those fey things, though, of like the the monkey's paw. Like you think you know what you're getting, but yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, 
sometimes just reinterpreting what that contract means isn't is enough that it's like oh well you know this is this is the reinterpretation of it of like mm-hmm. here's here's what i actually think that it means um so i so i think i think for me and this is forgive me if i'm putting i, I don't intend to put words in your mouth this this was my my thought process and i uh, but i think like to me it's kind of interesting the whole time just saying, oh, these people are just neoliberal. The, the old gods are just neoliberals. Like, they're very concerned with contracts. <laughs> they have inscrutable motivations. They fight with everyone and each other. <laughs> I mean, they're just... They're, they're just millionaires. No, <laughs> uh, sorry. I, I don't even know that I knew the word neoliberal when I was twenty. Sorry. <laughs> no, well, I think I, I mean, and then and then I just thought about it more. It's like this notion that like neoliberalism kind of is fills that f- discursively fills the function. It gets the treatment of supernatural horror. Like I think in like if you're on like and left Twitter and stuff. This is <laughs> maybe I'm just I'm, I'm just showing my. This might not be for most people in their real lives. But you know you go on like left Twitter and like neoliberalism functions like someone saying like yeah, Neil Arthotep or Yog Sagoth <laughs> or Dagon. You know like <laughs> all interchangeable. There's no the, question. The world will still be destroyed by their passing. So. <laughs> so so nine nine eleven uh, and then kind of and then assuming like the assuming kind of like quote unquote war on terror period it was really kind of the the context that forged a lot of this work. Um, was there anything else going on, like discursively? Or uh, Well, again, that's <laughs> this is quite a while ago, and I can't remember what I had for breakfast. But a lot of it, too, was because, was literally because I was working on it during my undergrad. And, um, like, like, first of all, an undergrad science student is a ghastly thing. They are, they are cosmic horror. They have no motivations. They are prone to falling apart into heaps of slime. They often smell. Uh, we just, we had a really hard time of things. And um, part of that I perceived, you know, accurately, but probably incorrectly at the time was because we were being unfairly limited by the man. And that was the university, but also the scientific and academic structure in general. Uh, I thought we weren't being allowed to um, you know, access enough lab time or work with enough uh, chemicals or reagents or uh, organisms. And of course, there's very good reasons that you don't want kids doing that, first of all. You know, they'll die. But also, you know, the the budget limitations, the time limitations, you're basically just trying to shove these kids through four years and get them to a point where they're uh, sort of educated and reasonably clear thinkers. But I kept thinking, what would I do if I had access to all the science I wanted to do and all the people that I wanted to work with and all the um, equipment that I wanted and all the time that I could have, what would that look like? Um, and, and again, obviously that's kind of where Johnny came out of. That was very much wish fulfillment at the time, but it also raised the question of if you had all that stuff uh, and no one ever said no to you, what kind of personality would you develop as you got older? Pretty bad, right? You know, you need, you need someone to say no to you and to put some limits on you because a lot of those limits exist for a very good reason. And Johnny's just like unfettered it or whatever the one I'm thinking of is. She's just, there's no fetters on it. <laughs> I didn't take any psych classes, sorry. <laughs> it sounded sound right to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that very much was the other thing was being a part of science at what I felt was the the fringe of it and wondering if it would get better and thinking, well, yeah, I bet it gets better if you have a ton of money, you know, 
which again solves a huge amount of problems <laughs> but but what seemed unfair about my science education and what I was reading about I I felt like I wanted to rectify in the novel and then it became kind of the challenge to twist that into something that wasn't entirely positive I'm not a scientist myself, but many of the people I love are, are scientists, and I've seen them go through, you know, uh, master's degrees and PhDs, and seeing them work like, I, I, like dogs, you know, just like continuously. I I remember like my part taking things to my partner at like one in the morning, like because she was just like literally grinding through like so much stuff um, just to for her, you know. For, for her supervisor and then the supervisor was going to take this and like put like one more of the 80 papers she published that year like on her on her board like on her cv or whatever like and i was just like why 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 are we doing this <laughs> wow why, why there's got to be a better way johnny johnny's amazing because like how many grad students does she have hiding in like <laughs> in her house <laughs> yeah no that's that's the other thing too is that she's very much depicted uh in a way that real science does not happen. Like real science happens with teams. You see the, the Nobel Prize winners and stuff, and it's, you know, maybe it's given to th two or three people, but really it was like 70 people in that lab that all contributed to that. Um, she has uh, she has grad students. Uh, it's implied in the book or, or stated in the book. She's got um, lots and lots of scientists working under her. But what she, when she makes her breakthroughs, when she discovers the drugs or comes up with their reactor, she's always alone. She doesn't like working in teams, which first of all, kids these days. But when I was writing the book, we were more or less peers. Like when I started writing that book, I was 18. So it felt very natural to me to write a 17 and an 18 year old. And I didn't like group projects and I didn't like lab work where I had to work with somebody. So I just threw that in there too. <laughs> well, and I think, and I think that matches then the way we we depict scientific breakthroughs as well, like to lay people. Like I think a lot of the time, it's like it's like, yeah, Tesla was Tesla was sitting alone, and then he was like, aha, <laughs> infinite energy from the air. But people are gonna, but the man won't. Let the, I'm not a Tesla vault guy. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so that, it did bring up the uh, the mental image though of yeah, his wasn't his plan to send energy through the air like from. Like yeah, yeah, transmission yeah, uh, holes uh, basically in in like world's most unsafe manner. <laughs> yeah, I think I mean highly I think like yeah, I think this is where the conspiracy he had like yeah, this vision of like wireless power, which is real. Like you can do it, it's just yeah, it's, yeah, it's dangerous and really inefficient. Uh, and and then I think there's a bunch of people who are now like, no, Tesla figured it out. Like thermodynamic breaking electrical system. Um it really exists and but but the world couldn't hack it, so they they hid it <laughs> from us. Uh so we need to just need one of Johnny's like power generators and and the yeah Tesla. you need the chambers and reactor then, and then we're good <laughs> like after that it's but but I think so speaking of conspiracies and cabals there's quite a few <laughs> this this book is lousy with conspiracies and cabals I love conspiracies <laughs> I, I think conspiracies and secret societies are interesting it, and you you make reference to at one point um, you know and Nick is like saying like what are we gonna do get a nuke and she's like yeah I could probably get one of those. <laughs> Yeah, she's uh, she's part of Bilderberg. It turns out, kids these days. Yeah. So so like, are are just all of the conspiracies like? Is this like a night veil vale situation? Like every conspiracy you've ever heard is real in the world of Beneath the Rising, or only, or only some? I think just some, because it is intended to be an alternate history. Uh, in the book, 
and this isn't a spoiler because it starts out right away in like the first paragraph or something that uh, the planes actually didn't hit anything on 9-11 uh, in, in the world of this book. And uh, so there's probably a bunch of um, conspiracies and secret societies that exist in their world that don't exist in ours, but look vaguely familiar for some reason. What what was the motivation for the like the secret society that that Johnny was was part of that had you know ancient people around the world studying magic and and whatnot? What was the motivation for that? Like where'd that come from? And how? Well, it uh, well a it kind of solved a uh, a plot problem, but but b that actually gets discussed quite a bit in the uh, in the sequel. Okay. But where it kind of comes up, I guess, and again, this this is from the sequel, but is um, not everybody can do magic. Even if you know how to draw the, the spell circles, even if you have access to the necessary words of power, even if you studied this stuff all your life, some people can do magic and some people can't. And the society was formed very, very, very early on when it was realized that what they decided their mandate should be was kind of protecting the magical documents and their magical learning so that it wouldn't be lost because it they felt it was kind of one of those things where if the entire public had access to all of this, it would be degraded or ruined or diluted or destroyed. And kind of the, uh, the metaphor that they use is, well, you know, when they pick a new pope, they don't invite every Catholic in the world to come to the Vatican and come vote. You know, they let the experts do it. Or if you wanted a new Pop-Tart flavor, maybe you would go and write to the Pop-Tart company. You wouldn't just show up and start messing with the machines. And that's what the society does not want to happen. It's incredibly dangerous. And again, to lose any of this material, because throughout history, there have been, you know, things like uh, the, the witch hunts and stuff like that, various kings and emperors, rulers and priests of various religions who have tried to wipe out the society because they accuse them of doing evil. So they figure it's actually better to go underground, keep everything safe, keep everything together. And that's the only way the necessary work can get done. It's very, um, you know, it's very anti-populist, but so is everything when you get right down to it. <laughs> well, they're just another cartel or guild. You know, there's they have an they have an interest and they and they preserve. They have it. an interest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so whether or not you're so team, they're just basically teamsters with wands. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're teamsters with wands. Yeah, and uh, that's actually that's part of the reason that Johnny uh, doesn't actually join the society. She works with them, but she's never been a part of them, so she hasn't got access to all the uh, I guess you'd call them the inner secrets and stuff. She's more like a contractor. And again, in the sequel, it comes out that she's been doing that for a very specific set of reasons i want this sequel now <laughs> when can we get it <laughs> supposedly it is coming out in march 2021 uh provided that human civilization has not collapsed by then i'm optimistic <laughs> it's like it's like 50 50 I'll, I'll, like, I'll flip that coin look they they already paid me for it so it's okay if it doesn't get published <laughs> Do you assess the, the, the cabals, like, or my conspiracies, like the guilds? So their intentions are neither really benevolent or malevolent, right? They just have a, they're just self-interested. They, they like to think of them as benevolent. They're, they're guarding the world uh, from these things. They're preserving the necessary information in case something happens. 
they're training uh, new people, they're preserving the archives. Um, they basically think of themselves as uh, highly trained librarians. So something like, um, yeah, like librarians or museum curators who have emergency response training, something like that. Because is there a connection in that then to like science in the sense that like we kind of have this world where like science, so. scientists yeah. are, have these have kind of a secret knowledge and secret power that could theoretically fix a lot of the problems we have. Uh, yet that doesn't seem to materialize uh, for, what, yeah, for whatever it's, uh, reason. It also struck me as um, uh, a fit comparison as well to kind of religion, right? So you have these, uh, you have gods or you don't, you're not sure. You know, like you have science or you don't, we're not sure. But you also have people that intercede on your behalf to the gods. They, they might uh, persuade the gods to help you. If you do something wrong, they might be able to convince the gods to hurt you or blast your fields or something. And I think science to a lot of people is not very much different than that. They don't understand what's going on uh, in the lab. Who knows what those guys are up to? Like, probably something evil. Uh, I bet it's murder hornets. I bet those are genetically modified murder hornets uh, that they found there in Washington. And part of that is that uh, science communication is not always uh, the best. And part of that is just a trust issue, is that people don't know what you're doing. And even after you explain it, they can't understand it. And if someone's explained something to me and I still don't get it, that's suspicious, isn't it? Does that sound like they're trying to pull one over on me? Does that sound like they would like to have some kind of power over me and the power is knowledge, either of murder hornets or the gods or something else? We're not sure. People don't like to not know things. And sometimes I think about books where the clear motivation to do anything is curiosity and nothing else. And to me, I think that's a perfectly legitimate reason to get into all sorts of trouble. Yeah. So 2020 is kind of then the perfect year for this book to come out because it's a year that's defined by a, a, an epistemological crisis of science and uh, and uh, an absolute uh, moral panic about secret societies. So it's really, if 2020 was condensed into a book, uh, we'd have it. <laughs> so Yeah, it could be like the third book in the series. But yeah, I, I agree with you about the first part of it too. One unusual thing about 2020 is with this, uh, this pestilence is that people are getting to watch the scientific process in practically real time. And that is freaking people out because they didn't know it works like that. Of course it works like that. Like, and there's no way to say how obvious it is that scientists change their communication and their theories and hypotheses when they receive new information, because that seems like a given. Turns out that's completely not a given. And the vast majority of the population is horrified to watch it happen. And I don't, personally, I don't get that, but that's partly the fault of two science degrees. And I guess partly the fault of me being very involved in science communication generally in, in all my jobs as well. But, but you said a thing and it must be true. The first thing that I've ever heard is always the true thing. Like, People changing their minds is a sign of their weakness and cynical corruption, not their commitment to a process They were of probably discovery. paid to change their minds by Hornet. Big mask got after them. Yeah. Because, you know, there's so much money in masks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
this was really fun. Uh, thank you, thank you for taking the time to talk to us, Marshall. Oh God, let me just, let me take that again again. Uh, so that was pretty much all the questions I I had. Marshall, do you have any uh, other burning questions? Uh, no, but one thing that um, just it it finally uh, the word came to me um, when you, you said like the the opposite of a pantheon. Um, I took some English, and it's a pandemonium. Oh, thank you. Just just as a thing, uh, you know. Man, all the demons. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And our Hino logos, I guess. All right. The, I think the last question then that we had for you is how does the, the Chambers uh, reactor, that's what it's called, right? Chambers reactor? Uh, yeah. How does that, how does it work? Uh, like what, <laughs> what is it doing? So um, my degrees were in molecular genetics and uh, environmental science. They were not in high energy physics. So uh, that entire reactor bit was pulled straight out of my colon. But it was great because before it was uh, published, when people were still reading it to give it blurbs, one of the authors contacted me and was like, um, I loved the book. I, I especially loved the science. Um, the Chambers reactor sounds horrifyingly plausible. Could that actually work? And I wrote back in all caps, do not try it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cannot guarantee what will happen. <laughs> I think this is good. But, this is good um, advice. <laughs> basically, I had I had read something somewhere about a new type of uh, literally just a, a carbon based material, um, like a, a nano material, very 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 thin layers. That in the lab, it literally, if you flexed it a certain way. Um, it would start shooting electrons off it. All you had to do was put the flex in it. And so I thought, well, if you make that round, then you know the flex kind of never stops because it's a circle. And then all you need is something on top of it to conduct some electrons. And again, I don't know how much of a spoiler this is in the story, but it turns out that when the electrons leave and come back, which generates a current, um, what they're doing is they're leaving into another dimension and coming back. So that's what generates the so-called never-ending current. And when they need fresh electrons, they just get that from the water that's, that the, uh, the torus is immersed in. So uh, in theory, this could work. And I think in the paper that I read, it worked on a very, very small level. It was something like 10 carbon atoms or something like that, and 10 associated electrons. But uh, I thought... You know, you can scale it up. And I do have people paying me all the time to talk about how interesting the reactor sounds. And I keep writing back, do not make one. I I just, I think it's a really bad idea. <laughs> well, you'll, be, you'll be pleased to know the University of Arkansas made a graphene chip that captures uh, ambient heat. So... Uh, so in a certain actually, respect, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So in a certain <laughs> respect, actually, a uh, this type of generator talking about has, in some ex to some extent, been created. So. Yeah. So start being very afraid. Lovely and safe. <laughs> well, it's not. It's it's certainly not infinite. It, it definitely like has. A, mm -hmm. uh, it's not very efficient. It's no. We're no one's. No one's. No one's going to start building these to generate power or anything like that. But uh, <laughs> as certainly as a science experiment, it's it's being done. So uh, so this brings us to the part where we ask you uh, if there's any books that uh, or or other media where we're uh, fairly agnostic on how to, uh, what we're consuming or how we're consuming it. Uh, any, anything, you know, speculative fiction 
um, that you think might be of interest to our listeners. And, and ideally, it's something a little off the beaten path, so it's not just like, oh, have you heard of this guy, Tolkien? Uh, <laughs> who who okay. is he? Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think as we discussed earlier, I am terrible at, uh, at keeping track of what I'm reading. Um, the last thing I read and really, really loved, uh, which also is about gods and magic and and the, the very fine line between gods and monsters was The Raven Tower by Anne Leckie. Mm. Um, yeah. Loved that. Would love to experience that again for the first time. Uh, blew my mind. Um, what have I been reading recently? <laughs> uh, I just finished Gareth Powell's uh, Embers of War trilogy, mm. which if you are into space opera, uh, recommend that one pretty highly. Um, if people are into reading about some of the off the beaten path, maybe cosmic horror that didn't get turned into a series, um, Ruthanna Amaris wrote uh, a series, I can't remember the name of the series, but I think the first book is called Winter Tide, and the next book is called Deep Roots, and it's um, cosmic horror that sort of humanizes the monsters a little bit um and you know doesn't necessarily make the humans into monsters either but is really thoughtful about the the tropes and the history um Ruthana is actually very uh very very well read on cosmic horror she's practically a an academic about it so i don't know half the things she knows that show up in the books as like a hat tip or an allusion to the existing cosmic horror uh kind of canon um yeah, I think those are the the main ones I would uh, toss out there right now. Excellent. I've I heard about Wintertide after it came out, um, and uh, it was spoken of very highly. So uh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're they're very good. She's a very good writer. Well, I'll have to, have to check it out. Fantastic. Well, again, uh, thank you so much for being here. If folks are interested in um, uh, keeping up with you, how is the best way of of uh, going about that? Uh, I try to keep uh, up reasonably well with uh, panels and events on my webpage under the uh, press section. So if I'm doing cons, which I'm doing, uh, I think, three in November, that'll be up there. And uh, I'm also on Twitter at, uh, at Premisaurus, and uh, my website is premimohammed.com. Super. Fantastic. And oh, and you said the, the, the sequel, it's called? Uh, A Broken Darkness. A Broken Darkness. And that will be March. As far as we know, yeah. Put put in a Google alert for it. <laughs> <laughs> you can find our show, Androids and Assets, uh, on Twitter. We are at AssetDroid. Uh, and my personal Twitter account for Marshall is uh, Econoboid. I'm Stephen, and you can tweet me at SteveDroids with an S. That's plural. Two S's, one on either end. <laughs> it's it's not quite a palindrome. Yeah. But like <laughs> God, I want a I want a palindrome Twitter handle now. Okay, um, Stroids. <laughs> Stro- <laughs> I've made a huge mistake. It's almost nine o'clock, folks. You can tell the silly yeah, hour is upon us. Okay. Uh, you can also reach out uh, through the old email uh, system uh, using the client of your choice. Uh, email info at androidsandassets.ca. Next time you and your fellow uh, supernatural cultists are gathered around to protect the ancient signs and symbols that keep the eldritch horrors from our children's doors, uh, put us on! <laughs> Thank you.
Sorry, I wasn't like, sure if you were okay. going to keep going or not. No, this no, no, is going no. to be yeah. like heavily edited, right? Oh, yes. yes. 100%. <laughs> I edit it, and that's part of the problem is because I edit it. So I'm like, I can just take this many times as I want. Um, 